Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our text for our sermon is the gospel history according to St. Luke as recorded in chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. To remind you of that account, I will read the first two verses. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding area. He was teaching in their synagogues and being honored by everyone. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. This is the gospel history of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it was Friday morning, I was in my office, and the phone rang, and I looked at the caller ID and it said, Microsoft Corporation. I was in an ornery mood, so I thought this ought to be good, and I answered the phone, and the man on the other line began to explain to me that my computer's updates are not turned on. I've heard this scam before. They're either trying to sell you some software program or they're trying to get you to open up access to your computer for them in which they can steal things like credit card numbers and things like this. But the truth of the matter is, there are a lot of scams out there. And at the time that Jesus had come, there were a lot of scam con artists claiming they were the Messiah. And you know, in our own times, that hasn't changed. There have been many who have came along and claimed that they are the Messiah who's returned. The Bible makes it clear when Christ does return, everyone will know he has returned, even the unbelievers. And so, it's no wonder that the people, for example, in, in Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, recognizing in the very synagogue where he would have gone to what would eventually become Sunday school, recognizing we better make sure that this guy's the Messiah. And in next week's sermon, we'll see how they end up not believing he is the Messiah. But in this case, he was invited to read a portion of scripture and then give what would become equivalent to the sermon on that. So we're told today in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began to tell them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you couldn't be much more blunt other than to flat out say, in case you're wondering, I am the Messiah. And so today our sermon theme is, in Christ all that was foretold of the Messiah has been fulfilled. Now, Messiah means anointed, as the Greek word Christos, Christ means anointed. And Jesus was anointed at his baptism, but he wasn't just anointed with water, just as you're not anointed with water to be a priest in God's kingdom when you're baptized. The Holy Spirit descended on him as a dove. And God the Father spoke. Did you catch the beginning of our text? Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Did you catch that? In verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. When we covered the baptism of our Lord, we covered, because it was just a few weeks ago, that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is God. He had full access to all of his godly powers. But if Jesus let all the glory of his godhood shine through, well, the people would have ran in fear. The prophet Isaiah himself in chapter 6, when he's brought up before the Lord and the Lord calls him from his throne to be his prophet, what was Isaiah's response at first? 
Woe to me, for I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips. And basically says, I live among a bunch of sinners like myself. God sends the angel to touch his lips with a piece of coal from the Lord's altar to tell him he's been cleansed. Of course, that would be Christ who cleanses our sins. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if Jesus had not hid all of his glory as God, the people would have been destroyed. He doesn't make full use of all the powers of his godhood so he can suffer in your and my place, so that he can stand before sinners and send the Holy Spirit to him. So when he's anointed with the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit guides him while he's not using all the powers of his godhood. That Holy Spirit had led him out into the desert to be tempted and stand up to the devil in ways you and I never could as our substitute. And he led him to do his ministry in Galilee predominantly. I suspect some of that is because if he had done what we would logically think, do your ministry in Jerusalem, that temple was to proclaim your coming, well, the Sanhedrin would have tried to kill him even sooner, wouldn't they? But the Holy Spirit had led him. And here as he reads this, the Holy Spirit guiding him right to the right passage and everything as he reads this to the people, we see that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And he used that Holy Spirit as our substitute, as our Savior. And so in Christ, all that was foretold of the Messiah has been fulfilled. And the first thing that we see in our gospel lesson and in that lesson in Isaiah chapter 61, he was anointed with the Holy Spirit. When he gets to, we get to verse 18, we're told... The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Now, we've got to remember that the average person in Jesus' time was poor. The middle class hardly existed. That's a comfort for you and I. He doesn't show favoritism. See, this is where John Calvin, one of the many ways where he got it wrong. John Calvin taught double predestination. And when people said, how can I know if I'm saved? John Calvin didn't say turn to the word and trust in its promises as God's Holy Spirit gives you the power. He gave signs. And one of the signs he figured that you were saved was that if you were rich, because that certainly showed God's blessing to you. But the irony is Jesus is preaching to the poor. The disciples Jesus called were poor. Jesus himself did not pamper himself by being born to royalty. And while we know that his foster father or adoptive father, if you will, Joseph, was in fact a descendant of David, and it appears through the Gospel of Luke that so was Mary, they were no longer, even though they were descendants of a royal bloodline, they were no longer royalty. We're never even told that, that Joseph owned a mule when he, or a donkey when he took Mary to Bethlehem. They were poor. Jesus gets born in a barn. The sacrifice they have to give when they go to the temple is for poor people. It's doves. And in fact, when God warns Joseph in the middle of the night, get up and flee to Egypt. Think about it. If his wife's carrying the baby, and we don't know if they even had a donkey, would he have to leave a lot of his tools behind to save the baby's life? Jesus was poor so that he could save everybody from the bottom up. And he preached good news. There was no favoritism. That often happens, doesn't it? Charlatan preachers, they like to spend a lot of time with the wealthy member of the congregation, the one who's going to give the offerings to make sure they get a raise that year. Congregations can forget it when you have a very generous donor. When we have things like the boiler's gone out, I wonder how that's going to happen. Everybody kind of whistles and looks out of the corner of their eye to that generous donor. But Jesus... Jesus' message of salvation was from people all over. But we've got to remember, he didn't just preach to the poor, which was most of the people he did preach to. 
But there's something else going on. Isaiah often uses in his imagery the idea of poverty to show how we stand before the Lord. The best commentary on that is when Jesus talks about the Pharisee and the tax collector who go before the temple. The Pharisee thought he was rich before God. He says, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other sinners, like this tax collector. The tax collector, he knows he has nothing to bring before the Lord. The law has broken his heart. He knows he's a sinner. He knows he stands before the Lord truly as a poor person, as a beggar. He beats his chest and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And who is it that Jesus said became home forgiven? The one who recognized he actually needed forgiveness. See, you and I are poor before the Lord, poor in his grace and his law exposes that. And when our heart has been exposed, in fact, we have nothing to boast before the Lord. We can give nothing to the Lord because he's the creator of all things. Then our hearts are ready to receive the good news that we are rich in Christ, that God took on human flesh to give you a storehouse, a treasure in heaven, not only of eternal salvation, but of forgiveness. You will never exhaust the supply of Christ's blood as you tell others their sins are forgiven. You will never exhaust your ears of hearing that once again Christ has removed your sins. Oh yes, brothers and sisters in Christ, in Christ, all that was foretold of the Messiah has been fulfilled. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and he has brought good news to the poor, showing us with his law that we are poor and showing us with his gospel that we are now rich in his grace and wealthy exceedingly with the ability to give forgiveness to others. Verse 18 also says, He sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives. And then it also says, To set free those who are oppressed. Now, if you want to talk about freedom to the captives, I can't think of a better example than the thief on the cross who began that morning mocking Jesus and at the end says, Jesus, remember me when I come into your kingdom. While nailed to the cross, Jesus assured him, today you will be with me in paradise. What greater freedom to a captive? Or think of Peter and John, who shortly after Pentecost Sunday, the Sanhedrin wanting to silence them, arrest them, have them beaten and thrown in prison, and God sends his angel to release them, and they walk out of prison rejoicing, literally high-fiving each other for being found worthy to suffer for the Lord. Or think of the apostle Paul and the evangelist Silas in Philippi, who were willing to endure a beating. All they had to do was say, Kiwis Romanusum, I'm a Roman citizen. And boy, that ended. They were entitled to a right trial. And the people of the council knew they had nothing against them, so there wouldn't even been a trial. But they endured that beating so that they could preach to the inmates, to the prisoners. God's reward for them, they had been poor. He made them rich. He didn't just let them be the voice of preaching good news to those prisoners. They came out also getting to baptize the jailer and his family. Yes, Jesus certainly has proclaimed freedom to captives and set free those who are oppressed. But again, Isaiah uses captivity and oppression for another picture. You and I in our natural condition, this is the sinful nature, are slaves to the devil. See, the world thinks of Christianity as being enslaving. If you go to church, you're going to be told, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. And they think that just for the law and its condemnation, they don't know the freedom of the gospel. And the irony is they don't realize that they're in slavery because all they do is embrace particular sins and they're, and they're enslaved to them, much like an alcoholic or a drug addict. 
Think of what our world does with what's meant to be a blessing of God with sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife and they turn it into a disgusting thing of just pure animal lust. They become slaves to that. They don't want to come to church and be set free from that. But true freedom comes when the blood of Christ is poured upon you. When the Holy Spirit enters your heart and gives birth to the new man because now you are free to struggle against that sin. Free to know when you win that struggle, that's because God has given you a new man. Free to know when you lose that struggle, your sins have been forgiven and your struggle still glorified God. True freedom, freedom from death. It's lost its sting because we know we're going to live. Yes, brothers and sisters in Christ, here again we see Christ has preached release to the captives, but he's especially released you from your captivity to the devil because his puppet is your sinful nature and he's given you a new man that can stand up to that sinful nature. So we see in Christ all that was foretold of the Messiah has been fulfilled. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. He has brought good news to the poor, making you and I rich in his grace and forgiveness. And he's preached release to the captives, giving us freedom with the new man that's alive in him. We're told also in verse 18, and recovery of sight to the blind. And certainly the Gospels record more than one miracle in which Jesus restored sight to the blind. But once again, the prophet Isaiah often uses blindness for our spiritual blindness. The apostle John in his gospel says, Jesus is the light, the light no darkness can overcome. Try to explain to a blind person who's never seen the color red. Oh, you can get clever and you can heat something up and let them touch something that's red hot and burn their fingers, but they still won't see the color red. That's our natural condition until God gives us a new man. We are blind. We won't find the gospel hidden underneath a rock. We will not know our peril. And man's blindness, the natural religion of man, is that you've got to butter up God to get something from God. It's transactional. And usually, when you look at most religions, they're not so focused on the afterlife as they are focused on the needs of the here and now. I need a better car, I'd better butter up the right God. I'd better do the right things. That's blindness. But God gives you the sight to see. You and I don't deserve it. We're poor before Him. But He has given us eternal life. Suddenly we view everything in this life with our eyes focused on the cross. As Luther said, at first it seems like God is our enemy. Because when you become a Christian, it seems like the devil attacks you a lot more. And, and Jesus said, if you're going to follow him, you're going to have to take up a cross. And those crosses are heavy. The world in its blindness says God must hate you. But with the sight that Jesus has given us through his Holy Spirit, we suddenly realize God is using this so that I see that I need him, so that I understand this world was subjected to decay, so that I cling to him and view everything through that cross. And with faith, I can be confident with what the world can't see. He's actually using this for my good, even though it seems the opposite at times. In verse 19, we're told, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you were Jewish people living at this time and you heard these words, you would think of the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee happened every 50 years. This was established in the Old Testament. So let's say you had inherited your land, but boy, times had gotten tough for you and you had to sell your land in order to stay afloat financially. Usually you sold yourself to a near relative, a kinsman redeemer, who would buy your land. Now, after 50 years the land returned to you. 
So actually, when your kinsman redeemer bought your land, he was only renting it until the next year of Jubilee. And if you had died, what would happen to your children? Would they lose the inheritance? Because the land of Israel was a picture of the inheritance we have of heaven in Christ. No, the year of Jubilee, the land would go back to them if you had died. If things had gotten even worse after selling your land and you were destitute, you could sell yourself as a slave. Again, normally that would be to a relative, to that kinsman redeemer, who himself was a picture of Christ. But again, you really weren't a slave. Because on that year of Jubilee, you were set free. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus certainly proclaimed freedom in him. We've already covered that. Jesus certainly proclaimed that he has restored the true Israel, the invisible church. And Jesus by telling us about the end of times, about his return, has told you it's all going to be restored. You see, God subjected this world to decay when Adam and Eve fell into sin because he didn't want them getting attached to this world and going to hell. But you will get the new heavens and the new earth. That's the year of Jubilee. That body of yours that was subjected to decay, that hurts and aches and pains and gets things like arthritis and, and, and Alzheimer's and, and heart problems... You're going to get a glorified body that won't do that anymore. Truly the year of the Lord's favor, the year of Jubilee, is the fact that, as we've already mentioned, you've been freed from slavery to sin and death, the devil, to his puppet, your sinful nature. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, we also see he has proclaimed the Jubilee year of the Lord. Our text tells us in verse 20 again where we began, He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began to tell them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Consider this God's promise to you, that in Christ all that was foretold of the Messiah has been fulfilled. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. He's made sure you know it because He's anointed you with the Holy Spirit who has worked through the Word to assure you of that. He has brought good news to the poor. You and I are poor, but He's made us rich in His grace and His forgiveness. He's preached release to the captives. We were captives to the devil in our sinful nature, but He's freed us. He's given us a new man. He washes us daily in His blood so that we are freed from our sins. He has restored the sight of the blind, so now you live your life with your eyes on the cross, trusting in God's promises. And he's proclaimed the jubilee year of the Lord. You can be confident you're no longer a slave. You can be confident this world subject to decay is not going to last forever. The new heavens, the new earth, and that glorified body are yours. Amen. Now may the God of hope fill you with complete joy and peace as you continue to believe so that you overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.